0: The Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, and our text this morning will begin in verse 28. Reading through this Gospel, as you come to this and the events that are transpiring, you would sense that there is, a, there is a change in the air. There's a change in what's transpiring in Jesus' ministry as we approach the last week prior to His crucifixion. What's known of course as the as the Passion Week. As for those of us who have tracked here through Luke's gospel for some number of years now, as as we've continued preaching through the the book, you'll recall that there have been those occasions earlier on in the ministry of Jesus where there have been those prohibitions issued by Jesus to those who would identify and have the ability to speak of Him for who He is. To speak of Him as the Messiah. For example, in Luke chapter 4, if you want to just stick your finger there in Luke 19, but look quickly to Luke chapter 4, verse 35. That here was the demons and this one, this one demoniac. In verse 35, Jesus rebuked Him saying, Be quiet and come out of Him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And he had just previously, in verse 34, identified to Jesus for who he was. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so Jesus sends his rebuke, commanding him to be silent. In that same chapter, verse 41, demons were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak. Because they knew Him to be the Christ. So there's the prohibitions that Jesus has presented against the, the demons there, but also in chapter 9, verse 21. And here the parallel account of Luke of the confession of faith that Peter makes. Verse 20 of chapter 9, he says, that Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. In verse 21, but he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone. So there's been this prohibition early on in the ministry of Jesus against those speaking of Jesus for who he was. The demons are those who, who recognize that he was the Christ of God. Jesus forbade them to speak. But even the disciples, when Peter makes his confession of Jesus, of Jesus being the Christ, Jesus says to them not to tell this to anyone. But now as we come to this point of Jesus' ministry, this point we refer to as the triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, it seems that such reservation is now being cast aside. That Jesus, by His words and also by his actions, is setting himself before the multitude so that there might be no question in their mind. He's setting themselves before them as the Messiah, as the Christ, God's anointed deliverer. So let's see how this takes place here, beginning in verse 28, reading through verse number 40 this morning. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up. To Jerusalem, And when he approached Bethpage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he said to the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you untying it, you shall say the Lord had need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, If these become silent, the stones will cry out. Well, I'm going to follow the lead of the text that we read this past Wednesday night in our scripture reading from Hebrews chapter 8. Where there, we made note of the the writer of Hebrews makes this statement. The main point is this. So I want to give you right now the main point of what I desire to accomplish here this morning, so there's no question about it when we're done. So whatever shortcomings I may have in my ability to communicate that to you throughout the message, at least you'll know, well, it said from the beginning, this was the main point. And so I'm going to articulate that to you very simply this. That my desire is that we be a people who purpose... To make much. Of Jesus Christ. We purpose. We determine. To be a people. Who make much. Of Christ. Now. As I was preparing this message. And giving thought to this message. I realized. Something. About myself. You have these. Moments, don't you? You realize something about yourself. And the realization that I came to about myself was that I am not good at making much of Jesus. And I wanted to say that I'm not a good praiser. But then I thought about that. And I thought, well, that's not exactly true. Because the fact of the matter is, there are those occasions when I will praise people. There are those occasions when I will praise a job well done. There are those times when I will praise a success story. A survivor. And I do have some interest in some sports events. I'm not... Head over heels in it by any stretch, but there have been those occasions when I will praise a athletic team for something that they've accomplished. So I realized in wanting to say I'm not a very good praiser. The, re- the reality is, I have to be more specific than that. That I'm not one who praises Jesus, who praises God. Well, I don't believe I stand alone there. And perhaps some of you can say, you know, the reality is, I don't do a lot of praising of God either. I don't do a lot of praising of Jesus myself. And I'm not going to excuse myself by comparing myself to you or anyone else because I'm not justified. In my lack of praise unto God. I don't know this for certain. I think this is the case. And someone may be able to address this or to correct this. But I believe the most repeated command in the scripture is to praise the Lord. Or some form of that. To praise our God. And I'm just thinking of the many times that I've sat down and reading through the Scriptures, and particularly the occasions when you sit and read through the Psalms. or the many occasions I've read through those Psalms. And, and there it is, the exhortation of praise the Lord, praise Him, praise Him. And you get to some of the later Psalms, it's just almost overly repetitious. To praise the Lord, to praise God. And you know what I do? I read it, I close my Bible, and not a word of praise comes forth from my mouth. And I go on about my day and about my business. Well, Jesus gives to us reasons to praise. And so we're going to consider today from this text how Jesus indicates to those that are there in his day and likewise to us today that we might see anew and afresh this Jesus who is worthy of all praise. We sing that hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues, to praise our God. Folks, I don't do well with one. I'd hope to have the accountability of a thousand. I understand the spirit of that. We, we need to recognize that so woefully inadequate is our praise that one tongue can express, that we might have multitude tongues to express, but how do we do with this One. How much praise, how many times this week have you stopped and deliberately or just in your passing prayer life just in there's been words of praise to God? I won't ask you to raise your hands on that if it's been more than five. <laughs> and I just realized, folks, of how poor a praiser, worshiper of my God, and hence disobedient to the scripture that I am let's consider here how Jesus reveals to those and to us his worthiness of such praise first of all we see here that he is deliberate in the fulfillment of scriptures prophecy he is deliberate in the fulfillment of scriptures prophecy we can look at the actions of Jesus, the things that he's doing here, and we can determine he is, in fact, being very deliberate in what he is doing. First of all, the scripture, the account here tells us that he is, he is approaching Jerusalem. He comes to the cities of Bethpage and Bethany, and he sends two of his disciples to this, to this village very close by. ghost sends them to go and to secure this donkey's colt from a nearby village, and it's recorded in such a way here in Luke's account and others as well, it's not really clear, but at least the implication is that there is a divine knowledge transpiring here. In other words, Jesus is speaking of something, not that he's prearranged. Again, there's some debate here There's some who say, well, he's, he could have likely prearranged this and had this individual ready. And so when the word came that uh, they would, in fact, send the cult there. But it's recorded in such a way, at least the implication, I think, that he is speaking from divine knowledge. Because of the details that he gives of to the disciples of if this happens, <laughs> which, by the way, it did. But also the, the message of this is what it will take for you to secure that donkey. Just tell them the Lord has need of it. That's That's sufficient. That there's someone there, when they hear that the Lord has need, that's all they need to hear, they'll so let them go. Well, why this cult? Well, Matthew states, as we read in Matthew 21 a few moments ago, I just want to turn back quickly over there. There in Matthew chapter 21, Matthew gives the details of Why? This happened as it did in verse 4. This took place to to fulfill what was spoken through through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So according to Matthew, this colt is secured because there is a deliberate fulfilling of prophecy here. Jesus is here communicating quite deliberately a message of who he is to fulfill the prophecy that is given to us in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It's a text that all of those in Jesus' day who knew the scriptures, all those who studied the the, script, the Old Testament scriptures and Particularly regarding the the Messiah who is to come, they would look at zechariah nine nine and say without any any hesitation that it was a messianic text. This is referring to the coming Messiah. so when Jesus sends for this cult and according to Matthew by the spirit of God, he sends for it and he rides this cult in as a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter nine verse nine, Jesus is making a very Clear statement regarding himself. He's very deliberately saying to them, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah as promised through the Old Testament scriptures, as prophesied. There were many there that grasped that, didn't they? There were many there, they, they saw this that when Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on this cult. This donkey. They understand what's going on. There's already, remember back in in verse 11, there's already this high level of expectation back in 1911. While they were listening to these things, Jesus wanted to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Folks, they had already done the work, they figured this out. Here is Jesus, here is the Messiah. He is coming to Jerusalem and they're getting all worked up. They're all excited, thinking the kingdom of God is about to come as Christ comes to Jerusalem. The kingdom of God is coming. So there's this high level of expectation there already. And in the words that they proclaim there, verse 38, shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. What's that? What's well, a quote from Psalm one hundred and eighteen, verse twenty six? Another text, another Psalm that is known as being messianic. So they are here speaking; they are applying to Jesus coming into this into Jerusalem on this donkey. They are applying to him by their very words, messianic scripture. They are making the claim here that Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew's account gives us further detail. The phrase there, Hosanna to the son of David. We considered a few weeks back as we were going through, through Luke. That the phrase, the expression there, the son of David, a messianic title. Because of the expectation, the knowledge of what the Old Testament told them. That the one who, who was the Messiah was to be a descendant of David. So there were those there in that in that gathering that they grasped the implications of what Jesus was doing. They looked and they saw what was taking place in their minds. It was very apropos to say of him, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Wait a minute, you're applying a messianic texture. Of course we are. We believe that the Messiah has come. We believe Jesus in fact is the Christ. To what degree did they embrace it? It's uncertain. Some, it would certainly be ambiguous. Some, perhaps with a degree of, well, maybe, but we'll wait and see. But it looks good. And then the amazing thing that we find in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 16. This is John's accounting of the triumphal entry. Then in verse fifteen, the crowd said, "Fear not, daughter." Of... He's, he's just quoting here, "Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt." In verse sixteen, these things his disciples did not understand at the first. There's some people that didn't get it. They were Jesus' disciples, by the way. They didn't quite grasp all that was taking place here. But understood or not, by his actions here, by this deliberate action of going and calling for this cult, securing this cult, riding into Jerusalem, a very intentional purpose in the the mind of Jesus here, of communicating who he is, asserting, asserting himself as the Messiah. And by doing so, claiming that all messianic prophecies are fulfilled in him. He's not just claiming... Zechariah 99 if he's the Messiah then every Old Testament Messianic text is fulfilled in him and if he is the Messiah he is the claiming claiming the right of utmost allegiance absolute loyalty from all of Israel they're compelled to If this is the Messiah, then we are to acknowledge him as such. We are to yield ourselves to him. We are to fall in line behind him. So this is the one who is worthy. This is the one who is deserving of all praise. And so when you see him coming in and you see the crowd respond as they do praising God and these expressions giving unto Christ, you know, how can we do anything less? As the people of God, all of God's people are called to lift our voices and praise unto this Christ, our praise unto this Jesus Christ because all of Old Testament scripture finds its fulfillment in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ, He is God's provision of the of deliverance and salvation to His people, and that Jesus' claims are more than that of a mere man. You look at the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah who is to come. You realize there's got to be more to this individual than humanity. He cannot be just a man. And we consider it even that a couple of weeks ago. This one who is, who is God-like, if you want to just can make that concession of the Old Testament. You have to concede that He's God-like. And we understand as we see Christ, He is in fact God Himself. But Jesus is not just, not a mere man. He is God and He is man. That Jesus Christ, of His coming, He is of significance to all men. He is more than a national deliverer. He's not going to do here in Jerusalem what many of them are looking for. There's more here than coming in and and establishing a national country here. The rule of, of Christ in Jerusalem. There's more involved than that. He comes to deliver and to save all men. He comes to save sinners. He comes to seek that which is lost. Calling all men to repentance toward God and faith in himself. Faith in Jesus Christ. So we can look at Jesus coming here and His claim to Messiahship and if if we're not careful, one might say, well, how important is that to me? I'm not Jewish. How important is Jesus coming? Because Jesus' Messiahship is not just of consequence to Israel. Jesus' consequence is not just of significance to the Jewish people. Jesus' Messiahship is of consequence to all of mankind because Jesus is the only name whereby all men must be saved. He comes not as a national deliverer. He comes as the Savior of all men, of all who would believe, of all who are saved. They come in and through this Christ. So all of mankind owes praises unto Him. And if we as the people of God we have experienced this gift of salvation how much more ought we be a people who are free in the praising of our Lord in the praising of our Christ recognizing Lord you are the one who has been revealed to us throughout the Old Testament Scriptures fulfilling the Old Testament Scriptures by your life, by your work giving your life for me taking upon yourself my sin. Can we not find anywhere in that anything to praise God about? To praise our Christ about? Jesus indicates, as those people praised Him, He is worthy of such praise. Fulfilling the prophecies of Scripture. Second, we see Jesus' devotion to the furtherance of spiritual peace. His devotion to the furtherance of spiritual peace. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on this donkey's colt was more than just a message of fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, although it certainly was that. There's also another message being communicated here. As He comes on this donkey's colt. This is a beast that was employed in humble task and accompanying times of peace. And it comes in contrast to what many would have expected the Messiah to have been. The one who comes in as a strong and a conquering deliverer. And if anything, he comes on the white horse, doesn't he? That's the conqueror. One commentator makes reference that there had never been been a king set upon a donkey in the scriptures since the days of Solomon. And here's the one that is being proclaimed in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And what's he coming? He's coming riding on this donkey. Because his purpose here is to bring the message and to accomplish the work of peace. The Old Testament scriptures speak of in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. One of the titles given to to the Messiah is the Prince of Peace. The angelic message that came to the shepherds in the fields is glory to God in the highest and peace among men. Jesus comes in a ministry of peace. And even Jesus' own words to the city of Jerusalem, which we'll consider next week. We'll look over in verse 42. As he weeps over the city in verse 42, he says, he says to the city, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. See, Jesus is about bringing peace. Now, we understand that there are other aspects to his coming. He speaks of a sword. He speaks of dividing homes and families, relationships. We understand that. But Jesus' ministry of coming here was largely a ministry of peace. And this is not the image of one Who comes in with power and with strength to break Rome's rule over Israel. And Jesus coming to bring peace was not that which was envisioned by the Jews of his day. See, Jesus had in mind a greater peace than establishing Jerusalem as his headquarters and Israel as a reigning people. Jesus has in mind a greater peace than bringing Rome into subjection to his visible rule. Well, what is that greater peace? Of course, we know the greater peace that Jesus brings is peace with God. Peace between those between God and those who are alienated from God, those who are alienated from. By being part of the human race. Those who are descendants of Adam. Alienated from God because of Adam's sin. And because of their own sin. Peace for those living in opposition to God. Those who are the declared enemies of God. Those whom the scripture says of us. While we were yet his enemies. Christ died for us. See scripture. In. God has determined the nature of the relation between mankind and himself. He's declared it. It's not just one of indifference. That we're the sworn enemies of God apart from the grace of God. We have chosen a place in opposition to him. So that when the, when Paul speaks in, in 1 Corinthians of or 2 Corinthians of being called to a ministry of reconciliation, what is this reconciliation? And the word reconciliation has the idea of these parties that have been in opposition one to another, being brought to terms of peace. That's reconciliation. You don't reconcile parties that are in terms of peace, you reconcile enemies. And so, Jesus, in his work and his coming, he brings peace, a spiritual peace, a more significant peace than simply peace among men, men with men. Jesus devoted to advancing this peace, to advancing peace between God and man. So, we rejoice. And we praise our God and we praise our Christ for such a condescension. What did it take? What did it take for Christ to bring peace between God and man? Was it merely a coming? Was it merely living an exemplary life? Was it merely significant and important teaching? All those things are important. But all those things are not enough. It required that He lay down His life. It required the payment of His life. It required our sins, our guilt being placed upon Him. It required His righteousness, His perfections being placed upon us to bring peace between God and man. And if Jesus Christ had come to establish merely an earthly kingdom bringing peace man with man, yet bringing no true peace between God and man, He has done little more than other great conquerors throughout human history. There have been those who have brought the conquest of country against country, of people against people, and brought to some degree peace, but they bring no eternal peace. And if Jesus... If Jesus doesn't do anything more than establish an earthly kingdom, He's done very little more than any other human figure throughout history. But thankfully, He has. That only Jesus Christ was fit. Only He was able to accomplish such a great work. To bring peace between God and man. He was the only capable mediator between God and man. The only one who could represent God accurately by being God. The only one that could represent man and be of any help to Him in His sinlessness. The only one that could mediate between God and man as as an adequate and accurate representative of each representing God representing man, service of the media to bring them together. Only Christ capable of doing that. Christ alone the only satisfactory sacrifice, sinless to pay for the sins of others. This is the Jesus that we praise. This is the Jesus who is and as Paul says to those the saints at Ephesus in chapter 2, this is the Jesus who is our peace. He is our peace. To praise our Christ. He is worthy to be praised because He devoted Himself to bringing about spiritual peace, true peace, the most significant form of peace and that peace between God and man. And finally, how does Jesus indicate His worth of, of such praise? We see here His own declaration of His fitness for sacred praise. Jesus declares that such such praise is appropriately and rightly brought to him. No doubt, there have been many, many men, many people throughout history that have been praised beyond what they deserve. Maybe an act of benevolence is honored. You know, as they do some great act of benevolence, people start pouring out their praises under these to someone. Sometimes, you know, praise comes in the form of flattery. You know, we want to endear ourselves to them. And so we speak freely in praising them. And many times, praise that is beyond what what is deserved. Not so with our Lord Jesus. You know, as Jesus is entering into the city of Jerusalem and you have the the multitudes there, the crowds, some that have the crowd that's coming with him, some that are preceding him, some coming behind him. Some, John's gospel tells us, who are in the city of Jerusalem already and they hear that Jesus is coming who leave the city to go out and to meet him and to, to join the throng, to join the crowd who's coming in. And they began to take out their, their outer coats and, and to lay their coats down upon the ground to, to lay out something of a royal carpet for this king. And many began to take out the branches from the trees, hence we call it Palm Sunday. They would take the branches from the trees and cut them and they would lay them on the ground because it's not fitting that even the beast upon which our Lord and our king rides should touch the ground. And then there are expressions in verse 20, verse 38. Blessed is this king who comes in the, Lord, the name of the Lord. Attributing to Jesus these messianic psalms. And those which are not recorded here. But in Matthew, the other gospels. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Recognizing him as the son of David. Title after title just pouring all upon him. It's such Praise. Is it appropriate? Was it fitting? Or is this the overreaction of a of a zealous crowd? Zealous, but you know, misguided. They're really making too much of of this of this one. Well, there were those who thought that what was going on was highly inappropriate. Verse thirty nine. You know, they looked at this crowd. And they looked at Jesus. They knew Jesus. They had encountered Jesus. They had spoken Jesus, to Jesus. They had challenged. They will continue to challenge Jesus. They had been embarrassed by Jesus. And here He comes. No doubt in, in my thinking, they got it. Here He comes, riding into Jerusalem on this donkey many of those Pharisees no doubt thinking who do you think he is? how dare you make such a statement? and then looking at this this mob of people that have just come in and just fallen all over themselves before him and thrown their coats down to be trampled by a, a donkey and these words of, of praising God as though this One coming in were, were God Himself. I mean, Can't you just imagine the consternation, the anger that was building up within their hearts. And so they look at this thing in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd, they, they just observe, they look at all that's taking place and they say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This is out of line. This is out of order. Look what they're saying about you, Jesus. Can't you straighten their thinking up? And what does Jesus say? Verse 40. Jesus said, I tell you, if these become silent... the tongue of every person in this parade is silenced. That there's not one single word of praise being offered to God or offered unto Christ for who He is, for what He's doing, for what's going on here. If there's not one single word of praise uttered from the tongues of men, listen to this, the stones will cry out. What's he saying? He's saying this. God is worthy to be praised. I am worthy to be praised. And if the tongues of men will not be used, then I'll raise up inanimate, lifeless stones to bring praise to me, because it is right. It is appropriate, it is fitting that praise be brought to one such as I am. He will be praised. He is deserving to be praised. It's such a right thing to do. Somewhere. Some way. Somehow, God will be praised. I will be praised. So, we rightfully join in the praising of Jesus. If we don't do it, God's going to raise up stones to do it. We're right to be a people who have a sense of adoration and a sense of wonder. And the marvel is that we have so little of that. He's worthy to be praised. As the people of God, the joy of having renewed hearts that delight in our Christ. To see him for who he is and to worship him, to praise him. And, folks, I'm shamed. I'm shamed at the times that my mouth has been silenced. That if God were to have been praised in my presence, He would have had to have had a rock to do it. Because I was so cold or so indifferent or so distracted or so full of myself. And Jesus says, it's right. It's right that I receive such praise praise, and even more. So how are you doing in your praise life? You know, I've found that even so little of my prayer life consists of praise. Folks, I've just done a little inventory, and it's not been very detailed. Just done a little inventory, personal inventory this week, and I thought... I'm going to talk to my people about praising God. And I just began to think how much I do it. And I'm shamed. It's Jesus whom we serve, this Jesus who has redeemed us. This Jesus, who is our God, who is our Lord, who is our Savior, He's worthy to be praised. What in the world is so wrong with us? So I'm going to issue to you an exhortation Praise the Lord. That's become almost glib, hasn't it? Oh, praise the Lord. You know, somebody says it to me, praise the Lord. You know, generally I don't do it. I don't generally praise the Lord. I just, I praise the Lord. <laughs> That's my exhortation to you, saints. Praise the Lord. Praise your Savior. Praise your Christ. So when you go to the Scriptures and you're reminded of that, you know, to go to the Psalms, when you read, it says, praise the Lord. Why not, instead of determining that you're going to get so many scripture passages read, you just stop and praise the Lord. I've got my McShane daily reading. I've got to get through this. Praise the Lord. I just feel woefully inadequate... To present the Christ to you that I want you to see. So that praise is easy. It's just natural. It's just normal. That's the reason I told you from the beginning this is what I want you to do. (laughs) Here's the main point to be those who make much of Jesus, praise Him. Perhaps you need to do your own little inventory. How much do you praise your God? How much do you praise your Christ? Jesus, He is worthy of all of our praise. Heavenly Father, we we come to you this morning. Lord, with a great realization that we have robbed you. Lord, we don't want you to have to raise up stones. Lord, loosen our tongues. open our eyes, renew our affections. Oh, to see Christ as, as this multitude, as they saw Him coming into Jerusalem. And how the hearts of some of those there must have been filled with absolute delight and joy. Here comes Jesus. Here comes the Messiah. Blessed is He. Blessed is the King who comes. Praising God. Praising Christ. Oh, Lord. May we see Christ as such. Forgive us, Father, our, our coldness of heart. Fill with fill us afresh with a zeal and a love for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.